Welcome to Building Better. This is Jared Silliger. When we talk about solving our climate emergency, we need to reduce carbon emissions fast. And buildings create a lot of carbon emissions. Most notably, manufacturing concrete and steel is energy intensive, so these building materials are responsible for significant carbon emissions. But wood, if harvested sustainably, can be a low carbon alternative. On this episode, I talk with Susan Jones about mass timber, which is a collection of strategies to build wood structures. Susan is an architect in Seattle who has designed several projects using CLT or cross-laminated timber. She's also been integral to developing building codes that enable our industry to go tall with wood. Hi, Susan. Welcome to the show. Hi, Jared. It's really nice to be here. Thank you. Yeah, fun to have you. I've I've known your name for a while through uh, a variety of green building friends, uh, so it's it's uh, fun to finally connect and hear more about your work. Well, thank you for reaching out, uh, Jared. Your podcast has a lot of really great local, you know, regional stars on it, so I'm honored to be part of it. Thank you for the invitation. Great, Th- thanks. Appreciate that. Uh, so Susan Jones uh, has a uh, s- successful architecture practice. Uh, Atelier Jones here in Seattle, um, but her work um, I think has you know much wider um, impact, especially in the sustainability world, which is which is what uh, what we're here talking about on building better. Um, one of those areas is uh, mass timber. Uh, is you know one thing I'm been really interested about, and and I know that Susan has a lot uh, of a perspective, knowledge, experience in this realm. Uh, so, so it's exciting to, to dig into that. Uh, Susan, can you maybe just give us a, a brief overview to get us started? Like, what is mass timber? And, you know, we, we often hear CLT, cross-laminated timber, as a, a you know, uh, a piece within that. Like, how do those fit together? Sure, absolutely. It's always, uh, there's a lot of monikers for it, you know, plywood on steroids and things, but, but, you know, (laughs) to be more precise about that, um, it's really a series, it's a, it's a lower carbon substitute for larger scale products such as concrete and steel. And that was really what attracted me to it is that it's a, you know, it's a very biophilic material. It's made out of wood. It's made it very natural, but it's something that also has very high strength properties, especially strength to weight properties that can then be very effective substitutes for very high carbon intensive buildings within our building industry, like concrete and steel. Um, So that's kind of the why I I sort of moved to it. But what it is, is um, a series of two by fours, two by sixes, two by eights. It doesn't really matter. And oftentimes in, if you, that's in the US and Canadian markets, but even in the European markets, the lamb stock itself can be very different from a marketable, you know, two by material. So regardless of how the pieces go that you make it up, um, mass timber has a series of components and they run from glue lamp beams and columns which we are all very familiar with as part of our building industry up to a whole moniker of other products which are less familiar in the american north american building markets they range from a whole alphabet soup of cross laminated timber or clt to nail laminated timber nlt glue laminated timber or glt or dowel laminated timber or dlt there's probably a few others that i've overlooked (laughs) but they are generally a um, a, a series of panels that are large in scale. They can range from four feet wide if they're being produced by Vaughan Timbers, for instance, over in Colville, all the way up to uh, up to twelve, almost twelve feet, eleven foot nine. And I think some of the Europeans are manufacturing at a higher, at a wider scale. But so call it four to twelve feet wide, by somewhere between you know twenty four feet. They can be customized down, but all the way up to sixty feet. Um, the Katera plant before it shut down was producing a 12 by 60 foot long panel. Anyway, these panels have the ability because in, especially in the cross laminated timber area, but very similar to some of the NLT and DLT products, they have a very strong capacity to, you can imagine span long, longer distances that is typical than for, um, uh, you know, a, a typical two by light wood frame building. 
they're bigger, more massive, and they're more fire-resistant fire as well. And they're very strong, especially relative to their weight. They're a prefabricated material uh, produced out of a factory that before that that order gets placed in the factory, you end up pressing, you know, really doing a lot of tremendous coordination between an integrated design matter between architect, engineer, CLT fabricator or GLT or DLT fabricator. Um, uh, and then all of the MEP, the mechanical, electrical, plumbing coordinations happens. And that happens in a, in a digital twin, if you will, of the model. Uh, and then that is coordinated with the, with the actual um, uh, machines on the floor that can produce those panels. They get then delivered to the site and a contractor puts them up on site. So there's a series of things that go into it that are I know we'll get into, Jared. And sorry for the long answer yeah. as an intro. <laughs> No, that's great. I feel like you were you were very efficient in uh, getting through the many pieces. Uh, in fact, you know, it, it is a uh, in my head, you know, a an extremely efficient uh, world that we're talking about here, where you know, mm -hmm. a we've got we've got you know less carbon going into these structures. Um, those structures then can you know hold the carbon that they already contain you know, mm -hmm. assuming they're not uh, burning down. And, you know, as you mentioned, you know, uh, as this technology has uh, evolved, you know, re actually very good um, fire ratings uh, that can be uh, sort of enhanced even more with with uh, fire treatment if needed. Uh, but then, you know, the, the factory environment, the efficiency there, the you know reduced waste and then the you know reduced uh, site time you know that that puzzle um is is really intriguing to me so mm -hmm. happy to talk about all of those topics in a lot more detail too jared <laughs> right right yeah i know it's mm -hmm. like each of those each of those has its uh its own uh world to it which is which is fascinating <laughs> um well let's see um how did you really kind of land on this as a, as both an interest and a practice and, you know, a, a focus of your world? Yeah. Great. Thank you for that, for that question. It's nice to, to hear the broad thing. I mean, I, we've been, boy, our practice is Atelier Jones is an 18 year old company and I founded it in 2003 uh, with the intent of being a much more design focused practice than I had able, been able to do in my previous career when I was at NBBJ. Uh, I was a partner there. And when I founded my own firm in 2003, I really felt there was a huge opportunity uh, to really marry design and sustainable values with it. Because remember 2003 was kind of early days for, for all of uh, the green building world. The lead pilot had only been issued in 1991 by the USGBC for new construction. The lead pilot for you for you for new construction. The exciting Portland conference that so many of us went to in 2003, where there were 8,000 people at this conference, was <laughs> was a real breakthrough in 2003. Yeah. Um, and. You know, I at, at that time I was making I was at MBBJ just before I left from 1999 to 2003 as a partner there and making friends with folks like Margaret Montgomery and supporting them as much as I could uh, through internal sort of um, funding organizations and funding abilities. We had had the ability as a firm to join the Center for the Built Environment for for those four years during my partnership mm -hmm. there, so it was very fresh in my mind all of this, um, this, the work and the research and the learning that was going on that had to be going on for all of us to rethink how we built buildings in a better way. And it was extremely exciting then to be able to turn that around with my own practice and apply this next variable of design, which frankly hadn't, you know, I think is obvious now, but when you start thinking about some of the stereotypes of some of the green building movement in the early 70s and 80s, and we were all merging out of that in the late 90s and early 2000s, there was still some of that stigma attached. And many, many, many of my architectural peers were kind of dismissive of, of sustainability and green building. And it felt like there was a huge opportunity to really focus on 
sustainability as a as a beautiful design element that could enhance um, our projects and and not just hamper them or pull them down by all this extra research. Sure. So sure. it was awesome to found my firm on that on that um, motive, Jared. And you know, it just was it just has taken off ever since. And of course, I've you know I've been kind of just. Uh, there's been so many projects along the way that we began to work with in, in our early days in sustainability from urban greenhouses or understanding biodiesel a little bit better, um, how to build on, you know, within cities in denser, more strategic, strategic ways, green roofs. And I'm just looking back on my, all of the competitions and uh, research projects, design projects that we've been doing over the years and, from vertical hydroponics to small sustainable houses and uh, the research that we've been able to do. But, and I'm happy to go into a lot of that in more detail, but the really exciting thing was those be when those became realized through our mass timber house that I built, the CLT house that I'm actually sitting in right now. And from those thought projects, those research projects, the, the collaborations with the University of Washington, which were incredibly scintillating and fascinating and I learned a tremendous amount um, and all of our colleagues did including my students which are great today as of today many of them are good friends it was very exciting to see mass timber through its ability to get built and to be realized and to be an, an example a prototypical example that that's when the traction in our particular focus area of mass timber for our practice Atelier Jones really began to take off um, and over the last decade, it's been exciting. Yeah, and I'm sure I'm sure it's it's not a it's not an overnight thing, as you you know, I think in part described there. It's you know, a, a kind of the first part of your career. Um, but was there yeah? Is there anything that really like sparked it? You know, you mentioned uh, certainly MBBJ has a, a international you know wide international presence. I know you spent some time in Berlin. Um, was there, yeah, I don't know, are there other things that kind of spurred you down this track? Because as you've noted, there's so many kind of themes on green building, sustainability, th that one could sort of immerse themselves in. And so you've yeah. like somehow landed in this um, mass timber realm, but primarily, obviously, you, you, you yeah. hit on lots of other things in your in your designs, but I don't know anything top the list there on like yeah i mean we all i think as a as a designer first but somebody who is really trying to make a very ethical um contribution to the profession i mean we're all professionals in this in this profession of ours and we do our very best to to act in that regard and to think beyond conventional boundaries and business as usual doing buildings in a business as usual way um but i really think it was the uh, the impact of looking at mass timber through a lens that I had built on through years of research on other avenues and then combining going back to my roots in so many ways as a young architect in Vienna when I had just finished graduate school mm. at the Graduate School of Design. Uh, and I had an opportunity to go work for a professor of mine uh, who has a small practice still to this day in Austria, in Vienna, and mm -hmm. just seeing how how different and yet the same uh, that buildings were being put together at that time. Um, we were going very deeply into, you know, some single family houses. And, and this was not a firm that I was working for that was particularly interested in sustainability, but it really sparked my brain when you, when you grew are emerging as a young professional in an environment where the contracting and design community is so linked as they were at a large corporate firm. As I had worked there in the, in the 90s at NBBJ, you really under, begin to understand how much of a singular effort that is and how the community works together. And so being able to reflect back on my time at, uh, in Vienna, where I was a very young architect, but I was holding, the, as the architect, holding uh, contracts for the subcontractors, et cetera, in the field, there was a clear connection that, you know, great architecture was being done in Europe as well, but it was also being done under very circ different circumstances than even from a legal and contractual way than it would have been done in the Pacific Northwest or the U.S. Mm. 
And it just gave me a great perspective to understand how regional and in many cases national, obviously, but especially regional, these these mores about our building communities really are. And so then to begin to think, well, uh, once sustainability began to kind of move forward and uh, in that late 90s period, and I began to go out on my own, it was like, well, how do you make the most impact along this, uh, this ethical continuum? And I really felt it was really experimenting with these design, you know, research projects that, that were that were exciting. But when uh, mass timber came along, you know, it had already been in Europe for 30 years when I when it started to re- raise its head up in Canada on the North yeah. American continent. And the two right. ELT factories, Nordic Lam on the east side and uh, way up in northern Quebec and Structure Lam on the west side, west of the Mississippi. Uh, and they were a series of, of companies in Whitefish, Montana in like 2010 and a couple of more in Vancouver, but they didn't quite make it at the time. Smartland, of course, came back, but it was uh, it was a fascinating uh, event to reflect on how much industry standards really impact what we can and can't do in a sustainable and design sense to move forward and how much we as architects needed to get more deeply involved into the supply chain to help understand and advocate for better sustainable practices from a very deep root level. And I really have to credit my experience uh, in Europe for working in both Vienna and Berlin later on um, to understand the that impact of how designers and construction industries need to work really closely together to help make changes for the industry moving forward. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, we, we so often cite the Europeans as, you know, those sustainability leaders and, you know, what can we learn from Europe? You know, let's send, let's send a crew over to, to, you know, get this case study figured out. And, uh, you know, as you're talking through there, I'm thinking through, you know, is it the, is it the design, you know, do we need more architects that know how to, um, you know, design mass timber structures or do we need more uh you know outfits that are producing the mm-hmm. clt um uh pieces and I, i'm mm-hmm. sure it's both but i think mm-hmm. you you just described it great in terms of you know it, it's a whole um ecosystem you know there's right. there are that there is that supply and demand we need people wanting it and and able to uh, you know, provide it from a design standpoint. And then we need people talented and, and able to provide it from a production standpoint. Yeah. And they've got to, and they've got to be in the same, you know, there, you could ship a little bit, but you, you know, that's part of the mm-hmm. efficiency equation. You don't want to be shipping it too far. Um, mm-hmm. And obviously in a sustainability sense, you want to, you want to go local and use your, use your regional resources. Um, mm-hmm. So anyways, a fascinating kind of ecosystem there. And of course, you started to hint at it, but, you know, codes and regulations are, you know, <laughs> paramount there. It's and, and we certainly, you know, we, we could talk for a whole day, I'm sure on, you know, what's the what's the European answer to this? You know, what what are they what have they done so well over 30 years that, you know, we haven't? Um, but uh, you can certainly hit on any highlights there, but I, I think uh, I know that you then jumped into building codes in North America. Um, and so that's, uh, I think, a phenomenal effort and curious to hear, you know, a little bit more about that. It's, you know, I think we've, we've talked about this on some previous episodes in different veins, you know, codes can often seem boring to some when you just say the word like oh gosh you know mm-hmm. eyes glaze over building codes you know but mm-hmm. I, i've you know really become uh, enthralled at by the you know the critical levers that they can mm-hmm. uh, sort Absolutely, of have Jared. in crea- creating change yeah. scaling solutions uh you know certainly energy codes get a lot of attention um, on on the podcast previously, we've talked about water regulations. You know, what can you do with this type of water versus that type of water? Um, refrigerant management. You know, what's mm-hmm. what's allowed? What's what's best? Yeah. Sure. 
Well, I think that you're pointing out so many so many great resources that our our Cascadia community has really had at their disposal. And that's why I was really mm-hmm. inspired by your podcast guests from, you know, Margaret Montgomery to others that were just really, um, really part of that early, early phase and pushing phase. I mean, there's a reason I hired Sloan Ritchie to design or to, to build our CLT house and Mm-hmm. Um, and you just had him on your group and the passive house is, you know, <laughs> yeah. is, is a, is a wonderful example. And we were inspired by it and we almost got there, but, you know, for our, from my perspective, um, the, well, we, so we built, I designed our house from a long, slow period from like 2011 to 2014. And I came to Sloan from Cascadia um, uh, Construction and said, you know, can you build this? And he said, sure, he would be happy to build it and gave me a price that worked. And we signed a contract and off we went. And, um, you know, it was a big experiment for both of us. Uh, Neither one of us had designed or built with CLT and off we go and house gets built and Lloyd Alter gets a hold of it and goes over all virtual media from tree hugger. And all of a sudden it gets, you know, <laughs> 1500 people go come through it. Um, and it was a success on a personal level. It was a house for my family and it was a house that we took a very strong experimental ethic towards. Um, it was a big risk financially for, for me uh, to, to finance this house and uh, also to build it. And the, the goal of it was to, really create an ethical model of experimental construction that had not been done in this U.S. very often. And I want to be super clear, this house is not the first house, CLT house in the United States, but it is one of the first houses. And and many of the other ones were kind of quietly built and um, some of them were under a significant amount of high, you know, NDAs and, and security disclo- <laughs> uh, non-disclosure agreements. So um, it was one of the first houses that got attention, and it was one of the first houses that got built. Um, and because of that, then there was a whole series of events that un- unfolded from that. And we were able to build another project of ours, which I call the CLT Church um, over in Bellevue. Uh, and it was really just a wall of beautiful, incredible uh, folded CLT that was supported by steel. Um, And then we built, thanks to work with Forterra and also the Washington State Legislature and the Department of Commerce, uh, our friends Brian Hatfield there, former Senator Brian Hatfield, uh, and uh, Steve Theringer, Representative Steve Theringer, were some really key advocates in the Washington State Legislature for both um, Atelier Jones, my firm, and Malam Architects to build some CLT prototypical schools. So it was around 2016 that we had had these three projects. Uh, two of them were, had been built, the house in 2015 and the church in 2016, that um, AIA National was reaching out and saying, we really want somebody to sit and represent nine, our 90,000 architects on this new code committee that's being formed um, at the uh, behest of the International Code Council, the ICC. And they wanted to reach out to people to, uh, you know, make application. And I have to confess, I, I had that same impression, uh, as you just mentioned, Jared, like, you know, codes are not my favorite deal. I don't consider <laughs> myself a real code expert. Uh, you know, of course, uh, I'm a licensed architect. I work with codes all the time, but it's not my, right. it's not my personal strength or my personal passion. But what is my passion is mass timber. And I really believed in the ability for it to be implemented and it safely and in a extensive way, in a beautiful way throughout this country. And when they came to me and when the AIA came to me and reached out and made you know some, some very significant outreaches to me and said, would you please put an application in? And they kept reaching out to me. I finally said yes. And I did slip something in at the last minute. And I didn't quite understand the role because luckily I didn't have to be the code experts because there were eight, 17 other real code experts on that committee. Right, you know? And right. then there were a couple of architects and, and myself being one of two architects and then a couple of engineers. Um, and we were there to represent how to build with mass timber. And we knew the product yeah. and we knew its potential and we could translate for these code experts. And it turned out to be this amazing synergy of 
me, you being used for my best strengths, you know, which is really understanding the materials and the design opportunities, especially at scale from a sustainability point of view to then yeah. how do we then implement this in a way that this group of code experts, the people really responsible for the building code in the entire United States, and it's called the International Code Council for a reason. Um, it's often used as a basis for international codes as well. Um, how does this committee with its best foot forward represent this material uh, as a new building material for buildings taller than six stories? Because as you probably yeah. know, you could already build up to six stories in 2015. Sure, sure. But I can really see how, um, at least you know, hearing you talk through that, that you know, your perspective having done it, both you know, you, you designed it, you, you put all the pieces together, but then you, you know, watch these three projects get built and, you know, figure out, solve these problems along the way. So, uh, you know, you, you understand the code enough to, to know what's sort of allowed, not allowed. And, and then you've gone and tested it in the field. So I can imagine that was hugely beneficial for that group to have you and, and some others that, that have, interpreted and 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 now want to come back to the table with like well we have ideas on how this could be better and so we can you know keep moving keep moving that scale well, lever it was forward. fascinating jared yeah because we we had ideas but remember this was we were going high rise we were going all tall wood buildings so yeah. at the type we had to invent new type new code categories that were um, <laughs> in the type four, for C, for B, and for A. And to do right. that, we also had to invent new ways of building with this mass timber material because the fire issues were was obviously such a life safety concern, and rightly so. Any responsible code, that's the first, first prerogative is to ensure life yeah. safety. And we had a very strong contingent of fire, uh, fire officials. So, so much of this was, how do we do this safely? And it became a real exercise in understanding the fire testing protocol. Um, mm. And a lot of the community out here in the Northwest was focused on mass timber from a structural point of view. And how do we, how do we adapt this material that's been growing out of Europe, which is most, you know, universally a non-seismic region, not entirely exclusively, obviously in Italy, but most of it is non-seismic, but to bring it to the Pacific Northwest, you know, lots of structural mm -hmm. stuff had to go into the seismic reinvention. But what happened on the code committee was that it was the fire life safety group that had to be mm placated and understood and listened to and we needed to go into an extremely collaborative uh it felt it you know in the midst of all those republican trump years you know it was really an example of of bodies of people that were coming together that didn't agree with one another that had many fundamentally different agree different value systems but we had to figure out ways to talk to each other and to yeah. uphold the sanctity of the building codes first. And, and I, the, the parallels to our national government at that time between 2016 <laughs> and 2019 were, they came back to me often, um, uh -huh. but we got through it <laughs> and uh, it passed in the code official communities. And uh, it, was an, it was an incredible moment. Were there any, um, I'm sure there are many, but any, any kind of short snippet examples of like, you know, this is a this is a piece of the code that you know we had to change or invent or cr create to say you know boom right there this thing allows us to go you know we we yeah. can get some agreement around this and we can go taller and we can do it yeah well the main one was coming up with the fire tests you know the fire community mm. had been really familiar very familiar with all of the, the the digital modeling the fire modeling that had been going on for for a long long time and there okay. had been a few um there had been a few fire tests several fire tests in canada and also in um in europe but we kept hearing from the fire community that there were these things called European fires. I mean, and there were these things called U.S. fires. And that was like, <laughs> like what, do you, what do you mean? These fires are fires. <laughs> Building burned down. And, and right. they were very, very clear that the modeling didn't matter. And the, the foreign, you know, abroad fire, fire test didn't matter because there were different conditions that led up to it. 
and when we dug into it, I, I really thought they were, you know, just backpedaling a little bit. But when we dug into it, there was a really strong point that these the, the tests that had been done, we needed to do them with with corridors, with ventilation systems that would then mm. have windows in the units and the compartments and the compartments needed to be a certain size and there needed to be an exit stair. Um, and there needed to be so that there was a path of ventilation through the exit stair, through the corridor, through that 20 minute to one hour door that gets burned down in an event, in a big, huge event. And then there's the windows that get blown out. And all of a sudden you have a ventilation corridor, which is fueling that fire inside the compartment, um, which is either an office space or a residential space typically. And it's going out into the atmosphere, which is a lot of oxygen that sucks all of that that fire through and creates a very high intensity and the fire community uh in the in the u.s felt that that hadn't been modeled correctly or to to model that condition so we said great well let let's let's create some test protocols let's do it <laughs> that model that so that we can be all satisfied because we were pretty confident it was going to be okay but to their point, yeah. they hadn't seen it and they couldn't feel it and they couldn't stand behind it to their, their fire community. And so yeah. we went ahead and we, we designed those fire test protocols for about a year. We were just on, a, on subcommittees just designing what the fire tests look like. And then wow. we were raising money and then getting the place to do it and performing those and getting contractors to build those fire test uh, pieces and then Whoa. testing them and trying to burn them down five times in a row, which they didn't wow. have to burn down. Pretty awesome. With no sprinklers for four hours. It was pretty cool. Wow. Yeah. That was a huge turning point for the codes. That was really an exciting moment. Like, I guess so many things like you gotta, some people just have to see it uh, yeah. to believe yeah. it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> How about from, um, how about from a design perspective, and this could be at any point in your, you know, career, you know, well, what else have you had to learn to, to make this all possible? Like, you know, it's a different way yeah. of designing, you know, we, we talked a little bit about, you know, it, it can get frustrating to just patch on these, you know, we're going to, we're going to, you know, use this new piece of equipment, or we're going to use this new material, we're going to, get to this spec yeah. is like, yeah. those are all great and we need those. But mm -hmm. the, I think the one exciting part of mass timber is it's just a whole other way of thinking about how you put your building together, you know, cause you have yeah. to, you have yeah. to kind of, uh, have the, have the structures, uh, work right. together to be, uh, to be all wood. So I don't know, are there, are there things from an architecture an engineering perspective that you're like, sure. I need to, I need to like, not necessarily go back to school, but I gotta, I gotta, I gotta learn how to do this. This whole journey, Jared, has been one of constant learning. And I think I, yeah. I feel so lucky to be in a profession where learning is at a paramount. And even if you're building the building, same building over, designing the same building over and over again, you're you're constantly learning. But what was really exciting about coming to Mass Timber was really being part of this community in the U.S. that was from the building up from the ground up. And everybody was focused in their own way to make mass timber work because of its lower carbon potential to substitute out for large scale building materials at, a, at an at scale uh, level that we could begin to lower our carbon footprint by, on a building by building basis by, you know, anywhere from some 20 20% studies have shown up to 44%, 45% and higher, depending on how, you know, a whole lot of factors and that motivation, even if it's just a 10% lowering of our building footprint of our building industry of carbon footprint is a gigantic impact. And it became really clear to me after working with the USGBC communities and lead buildings and being very familiar with the LBC world, uh, the living building challenge world and passive house that, all of the impact on operating energy that had been, we've got to reduce our operating energy footprint. I couldn't agree more and we could all do better at that. And that's the biggest chunk yeah. of our building emissions, but we have to go one step better people and we have to lower our carbon footprint. Um, and that was the piece that became clear to me in the, in the 2000s that, that was being overlooked. Um, 
And this was an opportunity that the Europeans, again, felt like they were leading the way to introduce biophilic materials into the supply chain in ways that really made meaningful impact if we did it at scale. And so the opportunity to sit on that code committee was really all about, you know, let's take, you know, it's great to do a house, Susan, it's great to do a church and a couple of schools, but how do we make that impact at a large building scale? And I think we're just yeah. scratching the surface of it. But what that led to was, a, a, to, get to your question, Jared, was a real building of community. And I, I really um, cannot say enough about the partners I've been able to learn from um, along the way. And certainly the code committee people, oh my gosh, the, the, you know, the work that Sam Francis and Steve DiGiovanni did uh, to the chair of that committee um, or Carl Baldessara, you know, just absolutely key people to help move that forward. But also the, to understand the genesis of the material because it's so, the mass timber is only as sustainable as its supply chain, which is its forests. And sure. to understand what that means and to go deep into the U.S. Forest Service uh, organization and understand how they manage forests at a national level and give guidances to our state organizations like the Department of Natural Resources and all of the excellent work that Hillary Fonz has been doing that for Terra on a state level, Latin local level has been helping to lead and interpret um, just has been has been phenomenal, not to mention like the lumber people like uh, Russ Boggan and and then you get to the, 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 the incredible integrated community of contractors and engineers from, you know, Swinerton Construction, Swinerton Timber Lab, a new company that they formed to do great, absolutely great work um, uh, to the, all the engineers, Harriet engineers, Jim Harriet that helped me on my house uh, and DCI, who's been a real partner over the last few projects on some of the larger work. Uh, has just been, there's been some phenomenal people that I find echoing throughout this whole community. Everybody is motivated to do the right thing by our building footprint, you know, in our built industry, to lower that carbon footprint in our building industry. And we have so much to learn from each other. And it's an incredibly collaborative, joyful group that we're sometimes sitting there like scratching our heads, you know, how do we solve these fire protection details at these joints of the <laughs> column to the CLT panel? And oh, what do we do here at this point? But, you know, we're working with the code community and we're working with the uh, the building officials that do and the fire community, the you know, Seattle Fire Department. And it's just a, such a broad um, and deep group that I have learned so much from every single person and I'm really grateful to be uh, a part of helping move this all forward for the reasons I mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Uh, love that description of yet another ecosystem. Like here's just uh, so many pieces to that puzzle. Um, and, and also great mention of kind of sustainable forestry practices. You know, we've, we've touched on, yeah. you know, a litany of, of, uh, benefits and, and kind of uh, elements of mass timber here. And we still haven't talked about, uh, you know, mm -hmm. sustainable forestry, like where's all this wood coming from? You know, I, I yeah. could see some people looking at mass timber and saying, mm -hmm. oh, well, gosh, uh, you know, I don't want to cut down all the forests. You know, I know sure. that's bad for, mm -hmm. I know that's bad for the environment. So yes, right. Not yeah. all wood is good. And so we've got Absolutely. great, great work by, uh, in the FSC certification world. And I, I think I'd like mm -hmm. to have a you know future episode to kind of dive into that more. Um, I've mm -hmm. been doing a lot on, uh, via, uh, living building challenge projects where we're, you know, mandated mm -hmm. to go all, um, FSC wood mm -hmm. you know so that yeah. has its own you know what's that supply chain look like what can i get how quickly can i get it and so i imagine mm -hmm. in in a mass timber world that's um of course important but you know you just you've got one more element to to manage yeah. uh so i i think that's that's fascinating and a and a great like scaling uh mechanism yeah, just to go parallel on that and deeper deep with you on that a little bit, Jared, it's a really, really important issue. I mean, I, I cannot stand here and on this or sit here in this podcast without, <laughs> you know, really wanting to talk deeply about the supply chain and the sustainability forest yeah. supply chain in the U.S. Um, 
and I, I'm not an authority on it by, by any means, but the, the architecture, engineering, and, and contracting community, as well as their owners from Google and Microsoft and, you know, developer agents are really, and city jurisdictions and our, on our own great community roots housing project here in Seattle, we're demanding some level of, of transparency and we're asking for yep. it from the forestry industry uh, and the, the, the regulatory bodies that regulate that. Um, and one of the things that I've, I've learned a lot about is I'm a, you know, I'm a third generation North Pacific Northwesterner, Jared. Uh, my grandparents, my great grandparents grew, moved here in the early 1900s and we were not involved in forestry by any means, but I, we've been, you know, forestry has been a part of our life kind of in the periphery. You can't help it if you grow up in a place like Bellingham yeah, um, or Aberdeen, where my great grandparents uh, landed in 1902 or something. But you you really understand forestry and the impact that the, the, the regulations had in 1990s and the Pacific uh, Northwest Timber Wars, as they're often, you know, uh, talked to, <laughs> what they what they led to, though, was some very good laws in Washington state that were very stringent, and they did really force an impact on the forestry industry. Uh, and it's been rough going for that industry over the last 30 years, there's no question. But what mm-hmm. Mass Timber began to represent is that there's a, there's a possibility of pivoting that uh, that war, if you will, between the environmentalist community and the logging community. And we're beginning to break down those silos 30 years later after the timber wars happened um, and after the big impact that they had in a very negative way on the timber industry. We're beginning to break mm-hmm. those silos down. And what I'm excited about with mass timber is it's become this, I like to call it an agent of disruption. And we're disrupting the construction industry by trying to do things differently. And we are disrupting that old paradigm of the timber wars in a really powerful way uh, as well. And we're disrupting that SFI versus SFC continuum, uh, you know, that happens where, hey, it's not one is bad and one is good and one is industry and one is environmental sanctioned. Actually, FSC has done an incredible job in leading the market of creating markets for higher sustainable forested materials in any of our wood building products from two by fours, yes, to mass timber. They've done an amazing job as a leader, but they've also pushed and pulled SFI along so far and so fast so that now the differences are not quite as strong. They're, they're there. And no doubt, you know, to get platinum standard, you know, is, is FSI, is SFI, you know, is it gold? And then you've got others and, and they, you know, they go down and the laws in Washington state play a part in that. But there's a reason the USGBC recognized SFI products as a lead point value system, because there's, there's tremendous value in what SFI brings as there is with FSC. And I, I just feel like there's a huge opportunity to talk beyond those categories. And part of it is because I think everybody in the industry, in the forestry industry especially, is learning so much about forests as a sink for its carbon, for our carbon that we need as a very desperate way. Yeah. And we've learned as a result that how important forest restoration is for our sustainable forestry communities. Because what happened after the Northwest Timber Wars is that no logging occurred, essentially. I'm exaggerating, but very little logging on any federal yeah. lands occurred. And it occurred in very different ways on the, some 30, 40% of forested lands that are owned in Washington state, for instance. And they occurred under these legal, these laws, which were quite strict, but they, they, did have, they had a very strong purpose. So what's happened is that in those 30 years remaining, the, the forests have gone unmanaged and there's been um, a severe wildfire damage. The health of the forests in many cases have been, have been damaged to some extent. There's been less ability to manage that because of that lack of trust. And I really see mass timber, again, as this agent of disruption coming in and saying, hey guys, we have a different problem here than we had in 1990. Let's think past mm-hmm. these artificially created, you know, categories of, of FSC, SFI, et cetera. And just let's figure out the right thing to do for these forests because we need to keep them as our amazing carbon sinks that they are, 
we also need to learn how to manage them better in a way that both accounts for the carbon that's in the standing forest, but also accounts for the, for the substitution carbon in our buildings. And we need to broaden that problem set from it's yeah. not just about carbon in the forest and it's not just about carbon in the buildings. It's actually about both of those things. And we have a gen an opportunity of our generation, Jared, to really change that conversation. And I'm really happy to be a small part of that. Yeah. Yeah. The, the wildfire um, component of that is going to be interesting to watch, like how, you know, I think there's, there's great power there to, like you say, better, better manage our forests. And, you know, while we, while we don't want those wildfires, hopefully the attention there they're bringing, you know, helps that momentum to say we need exactly. we need better better management of the forest, and we've got these industries that are ready to help in in yep. all their various ways. Yeah. yeah, I'm really excited on a personal level, also, Jared, because our family has a has a small um, 140 acre forest in the San Juan Islands, and we've Ooh. been able to get out just you know with my hands and my head and my you know family getting out and and really help try to restore some of that forest because in a like in a similar way to so many of our forests in the northwest it was it was clear cut by the former owners in 1950s and then my mm -hmm. grandfather came in in 1960s and planted thousands of trees but then our family oh, wow. just thinking that we'd already kind of done the right thing and just wait for 60 years not true <laughs> but you know 60 years <laughs> later we're realizing how unmanaged these forests have become and i've really huh. had an opportunity to experience at a very personal level just how um urgent and dire the need is for forest healthy forest restoration and that's something that is kind of beyond any of those categories you know of sfi and fsc it's really sure. a necessary agent for forest health and I'm thrilled to be able to know what that means in a really hard, sweaty, kind of dirty way on a, <laughs> every weekend basis or every other weekend yeah. we're up there taking out little dead trees because they're just little and dead and they're, hmm. they're squelching out the health of the higher um, value from so many value perspectives from carbon to, you know, just a healthy forest um, perspective. Wow. Yeah, that's that's a neat uh, neat perspective to get that m most people don't. So, <laughs> nice work. Thank uh, you. What um, what else do you think we need as an industry in kind of this, you know, get mass timber to take off, you know, scale this world really that um, you've been involved with, and you know, certainly the code work that you described is a is a big piece of that. And, and, you know, we've got these, some of these owners, um, often via certification, um, mechanisms or requiring things like FSC, but, but when we look at mass timber as like, Ooh, we should, you know, we should really consider doing this. Like, is, what else do we need to make that happen? Is it, is it more, uh, like architecture and engineering curriculum? Is it other public policies or I don't know, what else, what else do you have up your sleeve? Well, I mean, as a designer, um, you know, my focus is again, always on building prototypical buildings that can be examples for, for good, for good work. And so one of the, yeah. the, the biggest projects that uh, for our firm uh, at Atelier Jones right now is uh, for this eight story workforce middle income housing building on Capitol Hill in Seattle. And we're just about to pull a building permit in the next couple of months and start construction in early 2022. And I'm really excited about this project uh, as a prototype for, um, you know, how to build uh, with housing in a in quick and rapid and replicable manner. Um, this is a project that uh, I was helpful in bringing in a grant for, and we were working with some of the best hand-picked team in the Cascadia region, from the owner at Community Boots Housing to the developer at Skipstone Housing, Skipstone Development, to um, our team at Swinerton and DCI and ourselves at Atelier Jones. It's been a phenomenal experience, um, and we've had some of the best collaborative experiences that I've worked on. And I'd like to see that project, for instance, really be once it gets built and the proof of concept is there and, you know, we meet that very stringent 
GMP and we make that budget. And um, yeah. uh, I'm confident that this team will do that. We will have a building this almost this time next year, finishing up, you know, in late 2022. I'm really confident about that building being built and in the ground and a, built and a great example. And once it is, then what I see that building being is this almost digital twin for the future where you can begin to take that, you know, 400 square foot average apartments, but there's 126 of them. And if you wanted to go market rate and make them bigger, and then you make them into 1200 square foot or 800 square foot apartments, you take down a few of the MEP walls and, and change the kitchen around a bit and combine a bedroom or two. Um, and all of a sudden you've got a market rate or you go want to go affordable and your funding house sources are different. And so, but it doesn't really impact the design. It doesn't really impact, um, much of the, the square, the planning of the square footage. And you could use that mm. same model. And I'm really interested in, in t seeing that as again, an example of you've got one problem, which is how to bring mass timber to scale at market. You've got another problem of how do we build affordable housing in our cities and you combine those two together so that you say, okay, make the problem bigger again, just like we uh -huh. talked about earlier. And all of a sudden you've got a, pro a project that can be solving multiple problems at once. And it's already designed. It's ready to go. Um, a few little tweaks and we'll have it in the ground and uh, yeah. let's just move forward and change our cities and make them beautiful, biophilic, equitable experiences for all. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, once again, kind of that like we got to show show people what's possible. Um, yeah. Whether it's whether it's a fire test or you know a, a great project like this that you know, hey, we've seen we've seen your house, Susan, but uh, you know, show us <laughs> exactly. show us you know uh, multifamily housing and um, mm -hmm. you know I, I think I had similar conversations with Sloan Richie on on, Hey, can we do passive house at, yep. um, you yep. know, at a scale like multifamily, you know, Hey, well, it's, it's a, a little bit new, at least in, in this city, in this region, but let's mm -hmm. test it out. We're going to learn a lot. We're going to, you know, we're going to stumble around and, and figure these things out, but we're yep. going to, we're going to show it's possible. And then the next one we do, it's going to be that much easy, better, easy. that much easier, mm -hmm. that much cheaper, you know, I mean, Heck, I, and I'm, I'm guessing this might be a similar theme for you. You know, you, you do enough of the whatever it is you're doing and like, hey, what's the, you know, what's the premium for that these days? And yeah, it shouldn't be one. It's changing the building industry for the better and just incorporating it. Just like a lead silver building, you know, 20 years ago was like, oh my gosh, how much is that going to cost? And it's like, well, if you don't do something that's lead silver, then why are you doing this? You know, why are you in this industry? I think this, right. the power of the demonstration projects is essential. And that's one of the major roles I see our firm at Atelier Jones and is being having helped lead that you know, been part of that larger discussion from vertical agriculture to, you know, green roofs all the way up to mass timber. And, and we, but we weren't as effective as we are today until we got something built. And that was my house. And the next step of that is bringing that to scale for this incredible middle income housing project that's hopefully going to be in the ground by this time next year. You've mentioned a bunch of, of partners and, and influences and you know, we have this great community uh, nationally, internationally, and and especially here in the Northwest. I don't know other other pieces of that puzzle you um, you're thinking about a lot. Yeah, Jared, that's a that's a great question. I mean, I really do have to credit this entire Cascadia community, as I've mentioned several times. But you know, one really unique opportunity that I had was to work really closely with the University of Washington, and I was for a while on a tenure track position then in the '90s, late '90s, um, and then uh, have been a part time instructor earlier than that, and then lately been an adjunct um, for the last so some twenty years or something. And what that's enabled me to do is have this great platform with amazing students, many of whom are working in this community, the AE and C community today, um, and to really work out ideas in this design and research culture that the studios provide at a very high graduate research level um, about a sustainable house, for instance, in Chelan and all of the strategies that you could bring to it. That was a studio I taught in 2005. Um, or in 2010, I'm thinking about the, the studio that we did on greenhouses for Seattle Central College. 
uh, where we were looking at how do we do agriculture in a larger scale setting and everything from the quality of glass to ventilation to lighting to, of course, the design elements. It was just an amazing platform. Thinking about the green roofs that we looked at for our Berlin studio and then really relevant to this topic, the 2013 and 2016 studios that I focused exclusively on mass timber. Mm. And that was an incredible opportunity to also just understand better the resources at the university from people like Kate Simonon in 2013, who kind of taught me what an LCA <laughs> study was because she was teaching my students. Yeah. And we got to work together on that. Um, and I got to learn a lot from her. And now she's the chair of the department and leading the Carbon Leadership Forum. And uh, you should also have Kate on this program. Yeah, by the way. She's, she's on the list. Awesome. And we're Indra Neil Ganguly, um, I think would be a great addition also from the University of Washington, where uh, in the in the College of of the Environment in the School of Forest Environmental Forest Systems, mm. you know, he and I we were collaborating with a pro on a project for the Nature Conservancy, looking at um, the the life cycle analyses of these large scale eight story, twelve story, and eighteen story mass timber buildings. On um, doing that study for the Nature Conservancy, and uh, we just did the building modeling. You know, we're not LCA scientists by any means, but. Um, then handed over to his LCA group, uh, Corum, uh, also associated on it, and the Forest Products Laboratory out of um, out of Minnesota or Wisconsin, excuse me, Madison. Um, they were able to do regionally based LCA studies that went very deep into a whole building analysis, LCA analysis that. Um, that again, if I hadn't had those relationships at the University of Washington from the College of the Built Environments, I don't know if I ever would have discovered the gems that we have right up there on the hill. It's been a great experience. Yeah, that's really neat kind of how, A, the interdisciplinary nature and certainly um, University of Washington has one of one of the best in that regards. But just the idea that, you know, you as a practitioner can be you know, of course, you're you're helping the next generation learn about these topics, and you're you know you're giving you're giving mm -hmm. you're Absolutely. giving them a you know that that learning education opportunity. But then you're getting to test out you know new ideas and sort of like ooh, which you know I'm I'm just guessing here, but you know from mm -hmm. what you're saying, you're yeah. you know you get to Absolutely. you get to kind of pose these interesting research questions and then test them out like you say mm -hmm. sort of bring in let's bring in lca let's bring in forestry experts and like have the you know the latitude within the education <laughs> world to sort of do that you know kind of poking around at stuff and then you know later or simultaneously however the however the calendar breaks out you're then like ooh, now let's you know let's use that on a on a real project. Yeah. And that, that is so much of when it, what went into the house. Like we, the thir 2013 studio was right during the, pro the process of peak design on our CLT mm -hmm. house. And I am, you know, gratefully and indebted to my students and, and many of the faculty members for just like really um, inspiring and inspiring that studio results and then helping me learn along the way. Yeah. It's, it's really a deep and wonderful collaboration with the university. Very, very cool. I love it. Well, that is, uh, yeah, that's inspiring for sure. Is, um, yeah, anything else you, uh, you're you thinking about that you want to highlight while we're talking? Oh, so many things, Jared. I mean, you've, your, our <laughs> conversation has brought up a lot of memories, you know, over the last 20, 30 years, 25 years of, of working in this industry and it's uh, just all of the incredible communities that have been created. And um, But it's also really more importantly, looking towards the future. And we have an urgency and we have a focus that we all are, need to bring and continue to bring to this, to changing this built environment. And that's why I really appreciate uh, the Building Better podcast that you're leading because you're helping get that message out. And I really appreciate that, Jared. Great, yeah, well, thanks. Thanks for those kind words. And uh, yeah, thanks for all your uh, good stories here, you know, wide ranging from, you know, your, your uh, professor in Vienna, all the way to, you know, ner nerdy uh, code work, uh, and, and lots in between. Um, I think, I think you're, you're spot on these, you know, these demonstration uh, projects and, and research is, is, uh, is the way forward. And uh, so, 
yeah, thank, thanks for all you do. And uh, looking forward to seeing that project and, and many others, I'm sure. Thank you so much, Jared. Great. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for being on Building Better and uh, signing off for now. Thank you.